Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to Black Girls Talk True Crime, where we talk true crime movies, the people, places, and events they were based on. I'm Carol, your resident true crime-loving Black girl, and I'm here with my sister, Alex. Say hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. Today, we're going to be doing the movie The Perfect Husband, the Lacey Peterson story, and this was Alex's choice. Alex, you can talk to us really quickly about why you chose the movie. Sure. So after watching American Crime on YouTube, YouTube recommended to watch the Lacey Peterson story, and so I did. I mean, how familiar were you with the Lacey Peterson case? I remember it happening as it was happening, but I just wasn't familiar with the details of the case. So I thought, you know, why not? That's pretty much my experience with this case as well. I knew about it kind of like in the sense that it was one of those things that was everywhere, but I didn't really follow the case. Like I was in true crime, but for whatever reason, this particular case just, it didn't grab me the way it did so many people. I don't I don't know why that was though. But I do often confuse, or at least I did before, the Lacey Peterson case with the Stacey Peterson case because not only do their names rhyme and they have the same exact last name, even though I believe it's spelled differently, but what happened to them was so eerily similar. Just one was kind of always uh, synonymous with the other. I remember when you did first suggest it, I was kind of not, I don't know. It just wasn't something, I was just like, mm, I mean, I guess. I'm glad we got to do this one. All right. So we kind of open up with the infamous Diane Sawyer interview. Now, this I do remember. I don't know if I watched it as it was happening or if it was something I kind of watched years later, but I definitely remember seeing this, this particular interview. They've recreated the Diane Sawyer interview and watching Dean Cain's portrayal of Scott Peterson talking to Diane Sawyer. This is when he was trying to, I guess, rehab his image because at this point, the whole world felt that he was guilty. At the very least, they felt that there were some shenanigans going on and he was definitely a suspect. So this was him trying to, or at least his attempt to get the public back on his side. Just like listening to him answer the questions and respond to the questions, I said, yeah, he did it. Even if I like I wasn't familiar with the, you know, intricate details of the case, the his response just seemed or at least came off to me as not genuine. Like you can have whatever sort of reaction to any sort of trauma or traumatic event rather, or any, you know, tragic occurrence in your life. You can have any sort of reaction that you want because I do believe that people respond differently and there's no one way to act, but if you're genuine, however you do react, if you are genuine, if you are authentic, that's going to come through. And he lacked authenticity all around. Like, even if you watched, you know, I'm talking on the whole, if you watched the actual interview, there's something about him that just reeks of, I don't know, phoniness to me. He was just trying too hard. The movie kind of has this sort of fast paced, at least the opening. It's just sort of kind of fast paced, frenzied, something that would uh, mirror actually what would happen, I guess, in a missing person's case. It's night. We see police officers. We see helicopters like circling. We just see a lot of, I don't know, just a lot. And we see Scott being interviewed by a police officer that we later come to know as Detective Gates. And just the way he's responding to the questions, it just sounded kind of stilted to me. I don't know, like it just sounded rehearsed and just, it just, it wasn't coming off naturally. Like, I don't know if it was his cadence or what have you, but I don't know. What were your thoughts at this point? So I had the same thoughts as you. He 
didn't seem genuine in his concern. He just he just kept talking. He was just talking too much. Like me? It's like, <laughs> you know what? Yeah. No, seriously, he was just talking too much as if he had a whole bunch of thoughts or statements that he had in his head that he wanted to say. And he just made sure that he said everything just to throw suspicion off. But the only thing he did was bring suspicion on himself. I feel like that oftentimes when people are guilty of something, no matter what it is, even if it's just like, I don't know, stealing like a piece of candy from like, I don't know, the candy store or something. If you ask them whether they stole it, like they, they will tell you 10,000 different things. You know what I mean? Like they will tell you too many facts. Exactly. And that's what was happening throughout this whole entire case. For somebody who like, we'll later talk about how we, like, if we felt, well, I, I do believe like that he planned it, but for somebody who planned this, he was horrible at it. Right. Like, I don't know that I think that this was a heat heat of the moment kind of thing. I think that this is something he was plotting and something he was building up to. For somebody who... Thought you know, it out. Yeah. He met, it out. Yeah, exactly. Was, <laughs> exactly. But um, so the camera pans over to the living room area. We see a lot of people. <laughs> we see a room full of people, actually. And, you know, we later find out that they're Amy. That's her sister, her half-sister. So I guess that's Ron's daughter? That wasn't clear. But um, her half-sister, um, I don't like that term. I'm sorry. Amy, her sister. I know. I know. I don't, I don't like I know. that term. The only reason I used it, I don't really use that in my life just to, because I know that that, I don't think that uh, her and her and Amy and Brent had the same father. That's the only reason. Amy, Brent, her brother, and her stepfather, Ron, who seems so devastated. And also her father, who's kind of like her biological father, who's kind of in the background. He's really kind of a quiet figure. I didn't even notice him until the second watch, to be honest with you. And of course, we see her mother, who's kind of, you know, I guess I don't want to call her the star of this event, but, you know, she's the most vocal and she is totally having a meltdown because obviously her daughter and her unborn grandchild is missing. And she is trying to get the police to like get a move on it. You know, obviously the police have to do their job, right? Right. She's clearly frustrated and you can tell she knows in the back of her mind that the police officers, they are just doing their job and they're asking her questions. And she's just like, why are you asking me these questions? I told you everything I know. We should be outside, you know? And the officers respond like, they're supposed to respond like, man, we're just asking you questions. She's just so frustrated. She's just like, just finish, please. Just just finish asking Mm -hmm. your questions. So the frustration, it's there. Understandably so. Detective Gates, I believe, he's asking the routine questions like whether, you know, Scott and Lacey fought recently, whether she has a history of leaving, you know, in the middle of a fight or leaving at all, just taking off and leaving, and whether their marriage was secure. And of course, the mom, her response is they had the perfect marriage. Everybody sort of envied the relationship that they had. I always say to people, don't ever envy people's relationships because you don't know what's really going on. From the outside, they probably appear to have the all-American sort of dream. Like, you know, they were working their way to building something really great. Like he was successful and she was like this homemaker and she want, you know, she was pregnant and they were married and a lot of college sweethearts. And they appear to seem to have something that people aspire to, but there was something brewing underneath it all that not even Lacey was privy to. He later asks uh, Detective Gates, Scott, these, you know, same questions, whether their marriage was secure. And he said, oh no, our marriage was perfect. Red flag. Who in the world 
would ever describe their marriage as perfect. I just think that that is such a glaring sign. I don't know anybody who thinks their relationship is perfect. So um, he's saying they were having a baby and her her mom is basically echoing his sentiments. So we meet Tommy and Kate and we later find out that they're really good friends with the Petersons. Tommy and Kate actually grew up with Lacey. I think Tommy's known her since the first grade and him and Scott kind of became best friends. So he calls and he leaves a message. So the first message is basically like saying, hey, it's New Year's, yada, yada, yada. And then the second message is like, oh no, Lacey is missing. You know, so, you know, he has to make his rounds basically. I'm talking about Scott. Then that's when they get receive a call from somebody named Donna and she's saying basically something happened to Lacey. We also see Kate. She's in the living room watching a report. They must have really hit the ground running, these cops, because there's already a report about a missing pregnant woman woman who went to walk her dog and now she's suddenly gone. She was news like from jump. We should all be so lucky. So at this point, we see the friends, Donna, Angela, Tommy, Kate. They're basically at this point helping in the search efforts. And I have read something about at one point, they had up to like 900 people you know, volunteering. Yes. Searching. Okay. That is mind blowing to me. That's a lot Something of people. that we don't see. Yeah. The cops, the volunteers, they all gather together and, you know, Detective Gates gives them the search agenda. That's what I call it. At this point, Detective Gates tells Detective Ross, who's the other cop who was there the night that he smelled bleach when they were at Scott's house. And Detective Ross is kind of, he's sort of skeptical. And he says that, well, it could have been something you know, coming off the pool. Kate and Tommy, they're at home. So this is Christmas. We forgot to mention the night that Lacey went missing was Christmas Eve. I just wanted to know why he chose this particular day. Because he was cold. He just didn't care. He was only thinking of himself. But of all the days in the world, why would you choose this day? I mean, there's really never a good day for murder. But I mean, that's debatable. That's debatable. No, that isn't. Mondays are kind of... No, I'm just kidding. So at one point, Tommy is posting flyers and an older woman, she kind of approaches him and says, she tells him that she saw Lacey walking her dog on Christmas Eve. That's when he takes her information. He later relays that to Detective Ross. Okay, that'll come back. Put a pin in that. We'll come back to this particular point later. Yes. So in this scene, Brett and Tommy are hanging up posters and Scott is with them. And while they're hanging up posters, he's walking the dog. Now, I don't know if this happened in real life, but I think they put that part in the movie just to show how there was a lack of involvement on his part when it came to finding Lacey. What do you mean? Wait, I'm confused. So throughout the case, people were saying, and you know, you saw in the movie that he just wasn't as involved yeah. as everyone else. Yeah. People are physically hanging up posters. Yeah, okay, okay. He's okay. just walking the dog. Yeah, that was a that was actually a con like you said, it was a common th- theme throughout the movie. And when you watch, you know, documentaries or you hear the people involved in his actual life talk about it, that is to a T, Scott. He was trying to be as far removed from this case as possible without looking too suspicious, but it seems suspicious because you are the husband. You should want to be involved as much as possible. Detective Gates returns with a search warrant to search for their home and the car. I um I remember reading that they asked him because you, you don't need a search warrant if the homeowner gives consent, right? They actually asked him to... <laughs> give consent to search the house before, you know, and his response was, 
come on guys, where's the trust? Like what kind of response is that? If you have a missing wife, you should, missing wife, spouse, child, anybody that you love, you should want to do anything that you can to ensure that they're found. That should be a no brainer. If the cops want to come in and search your home because they may potentially be able to find a clue that could lead to them and you know, possibly to their safe return. How is that even a question? Where's what trust? Right. That is obviously the response of a guilty person. Instead of allowing them to enter the home without issue, without a problem. At this point, they also request that he goes to the station. And this is when we kind of get a first glimpse at just what a media frenzy this is, because there are reporters camped out on the lawn. They're like everywhere. So we're introduced to something called the Sun Carrington Foundation, and they introduced themselves to the family as advocates for families of the missing. And they had ties to the Chandra Levy. I can never pronounce that woman's name. Chandra Levy? Chandra Levy case, which was a- Another publicized case. All right. And so at this point, this is when they are instructed or advised to set up a search center. And so that's what they do. And this is another part where- we see how hands-off Scott is with the search center. That comes up later, but he does not want to get too involved with the case. He he avoids, because there's I think media is there a lot, you know, throughout their, the time that they set up the search center. The media is there a lot, and he wants to not be involved at all. Well, one of the reasons that we feel that we come to learn he doesn't want to be involved is because he is actually involved with his mistress. Spoiler alert. (laughs) And he simply just doesn't care. He already knows Stacy's whereabouts. So he feels that there's no point in conducting a search or trying to find her because he knows that, you know, she's gone. I also think that had a lot to do with the fact that he didn't want to be photographed or recorded because because it was such a big deal. He didn't want Amber, his mistress, he didn't want her to find out. So he wanted to kind of fade away into the background, but give the appearance that he cared. So we also see Jackie and Lee. Those are Scott's parents. And we see that they are, you know, they come, they seem very compassionate about the situation. They seem to be on good terms with the roaches. I don't really care for these parents at all. Did you see them in an interview? Like they seem so like, I understand that you love your children and you don't want to believe that you raised somebody who could do something so high anus. Get it? High anus? What? That was a My Cousin Vinny reference. Oh, okay. Like the turn, he'd be like, this high anus crime. All right. Mm. You really should watch that movie. Anybody who got that, I love you. If you didn't, mm, you're lost. So now we're in the interrogation room with Scott and the two detectives, um, Ross and Gates. You can actually watch the video online. How many videos are there? Because the the video that I saw online was one of an interrogation with him and one detective. That might be the one I'm talking about. That was a Brokini. Who was that? That's the detective. Oh, they changed the name in the movie. Yeah, it was Detective Brokini and Bueller. Those are the actual detective's names. Bueller? Bueller? No, stop. (laughs) Loser. Oh, you can make your movie references, but I can't. Yeah, because it's cute when I do it. When you do okay. it, it's lame. All right. Okay. I see how it is. <laughs> yeah. So they ask him what we presume will be the standard questions in a case like this. They're trying to ascertain what his alibi is. So they want to know if he spoke to anyone, if he saw anyone, because his assertion is that he was at the marina. 
I, I read that initially he told the cops that he was golfing that day, and then he ended up switching to tell them that he was fishing for sturgeon. Here we, we see him just basically sticking with that story that he was fishing. And they're asking him if there's anyone that could confirm his whereabouts. He has a, mar- a marina receipt, but it's not timestamped. And while they're asking their questions, while they're doing their job, he gets frustrated with the questioning and he reiterates the timeline that he's probably rehearsed a million times and questions continue. And he says, stop asking me these questions over and over again. But of course they continue. That's the thing about like interrogations. They will ask you the same questions 50 different different ways. ways just to see how you respond and make sure the response is the same every single time. Because if you're telling the truth, right, you don't have to remember anything. That's the problem. Exactly. Some woman, she said that in uh, one of the documentaries I watched. If you have to remember a lie and you kind of remember it in this sort of linear way, when they flip the questions upside down and inside out, it's so much harder for you to remember it than if you are telling the truth. Because the truth is the truth is the truth always. Any way you turn it, it will be the truth. And you don't have to like sort of memorize anything. Right. But, um, his story basically is that he towed the boat to the marina. He got to the bay around 11. Then he motored out to Brooks Island. And we can see at this point that Detective Ross is not buying it. And that's when Gates kind of questions him about the bleach. Remember that from several scenes before that bleach? And he's saying that the Ross had already spoken to the cleaning woman. And she says that she doesn't use straight up bleach to clean. You know, you, she basically dilutes it. And he's and saying- he comes up with a different story. Which I thought wasn't a bad story, to be honest with you. Right. They have a dog and the dog gets muddy sometimes. And so he probably just cleaned up after his dog. And so that's when they kind of, you know, continue their questions a little bit. What were you fishing for? Sturgeon? What kind of bait did you use? And then they also said that one of the neighbors noticed that Stacy, who always opened her blinds every morning, she just sounds like, like a happy home, you know, like a happy, like Susie homemaker, right? Like she opened her blinds every morning. And on this particular morning, she didn't, she happened to not open her blinds. Did you think about that statement, how a neighbor noticed that she always opens her blinds? Like how nosy are your neighbors? This is a retired- attention to something like that, you know? That neighbor in my mind, it was a retired old woman who doesn't have much to do. So she just kind of sits, you know, in a window and she watches this And watches everyone goes by, Yeah. yeah. That's that in my mind. And her name is Mrs. Smith. No, it's not. No, no, it's not that boring. She's a little bit more interesting. I'll come up with a name. Mrs. I was going to say Mrs. Stein, but that's not interesting. I think I think that was something that was on my mind. Stein? I think so. Really? Something along those lines. Yeah, it's weird. All right, Mrs. Stein, you need to mind your business. Um, So Scott. Oh, yeah. He's he's with Tommy now. And he's basically upset that he's a suspect. And Tommy tries to kind of calm his concerns and, you know, Scott's not having it. So I guess Scott, in his mind, he thought, hey, I'm this charismatic guy. Because, like, I think that that was kind of like a recurring theme I saw, like, people when they talked about the actual Scott Peterson. Like, he was somebody that people liked. He got along with everybody. He was charming. He was handsome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think he thought that he would do this. He would give his little story. Everybody would buy it. And he would just go and live happily ever after with his mistress. I think that the frustration is really setting in here because he, this is his, probably his first major obstacle in life. In my mind, his parents kind of like gave him whatever he wanted. Like he was kind of like a spoiled brat. He kind of was those, one of those guys that had it easy, you know, or easier than most. Like this is like a real hurdle in his life. And he just didn't anticipate something like this. So we're at a press conference now and 
There are reporters everywhere, you know, these nosy reporters. They're inquiring about Scott, whether he is a suspect and whether he has been cleared, to which Detective Gates answers both to no questions. And he also says that the public can help confirm an alibi. So if anybody saw him the night that he's stating that he was at the marina to come forward with that information. So Scott is gathered in the living room with his family and his friends. They're inquiring about any potential skeletons that he may have in his closet that he wants to reveal. This is his opportunity to come forth with anything, to share anything, to reveal any potential surprises. This is the moment, I think, that he could have really, I think, possibly helped his case so much. You know, had he just told them, hey, I cheated on Lacey. You know, I slipped up in my marriage. I told Lacey about it. He could have even lied. Like, I told Lacey about it. She knew about it. And we were working through it. I think he should have said something then. But he thought he was so smart. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. He thought he planned everything through and didn't need to say it. And if you think about it, even if he had said it, yes, it would have made things a little bit better, but it still would have been a lose-lose situation for him because one, they always think it's the husband and two, you're saying that you have a mistress. So now they're going to want to talk to your mistress to get information. And then they would have learned, you know, that what you're saying happened didn't actually happen. Like ordinarily, like you could probably get away with something like that, but you know that there is a media frenzy surrounding this case. So you have to know that the odds that this is going to get out are very, very high. He should have opened his thin lipped mouth. (laughs) Like you said, he thought, he thought everything through and he did it. And I'm sure he didn't expect the media frenzy that came along with this case. And he just probably didn't feel like reworking his theory. But you at this I mean? point, he, thought- he sorry, I'm sorry. But at this point, the media frenzy had already happened. This was he already knew that there was like this bloodlust for more news. So he knew that's what I'm saying. He yeah, pro- okay, so yeah, yeah I see he what probably you're thought his story was good enough, or he yeah. just was too lazy to rework another theory. He was like he had he was so he had tunnel vision. Yeah, yeah, I think exactly. that's what it was. He had tunnel vision. Like this was, I feel like this is something he worked at over the course of, let's say a couple of months or whatever. And he thought about his plan from point A to point Z. And that was it. He's just going to go step A, B, C, D. And it doesn't matter what happened in between. He was still going to stick to each step. And that's the problem. And essentially, I'm not advising anybody on how to murder However, if you're going to murder, you got to know how to adapt. You know what I mean? Am I right? And it has to be on a Monday. Uh, that was Alex. He also tells his family at this point that he doesn't want to talk to the press because they're making him a victim. It has nothing to do with the fact that he doesn't want to be front and center. It's because they're making him a victim. They're making him the bad guy, right? So afterwards, he calls his mistress Amber Fry and tells her that after January 26, I'm all yours. He thought it would take the police a month to stop investigating him or eliminate him as a suspect. Arrogance. I don't get that. Arrogance. Yeah. Can I, like, you know what struck me as so odd or like, it just was so weird to me. He didn't want this life with Stacy and Connor. Connor was the name of his unborn son, but he wanted this, a very similar life with Amber and her daughter. Cause we noticed in this call that she also has a daughter. I don't understand. I think the theory is that he wanted to be free. Why was he going to wrap himself up in a whole other very similar situation. Similar situation, yeah. Like, that is so weird to me. It doesn't make any sense. At all. 
anyway. Who's to say that he wouldn't have got gotten bored with her and done the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. That's been known to happen. So we're at the driveway. Um, they had get the dog to kind of like a bloodhound to pick up a scent to or try to detect Lacey's scent. And the handler is telling the detective at this point that beyond the driveway, her scent is undetectable, which indicates that she didn't leave the house on foot. So that's not a good sign. Not a good sign at all. The next scene shows Lacey's mom in a TV interview praising Scott, uplifting him. She's doing the very thing that he needs to be doing. Holding a TV interview, telling people how much she loves Lacey and how much she misses her and how much she hopes for her, her return soon. But he can't do it. He can't do it for two reasons. One, he can't act to save his life. And he has to act because he knows that Lacey is dead and he's the one that killed her. The second reason he doesn't want to do the TV interview was because he didn't want his mistress to find out that he was actually married. Can we talk about exactly what she said in that interview, though? How she called them or she referred to them as the fairy tale couple and she called Scott the prince. Right. That didn't right. age well. That didn't age well at all. Yikes. Like, that's the thing. This family was so ride or die for Scott. If you hear her talk about Sharon, about how, like, about Scott, like, in the early days, she really, really cared for that man. Like, she really looked at him as a son. Like, this family, they really embraced him. He didn't just betray... Yeah. He didn't just betray Stacey and Connor. He betrayed that entire family. For what? You're trying to rationalize his reasoning for killing her. I... I don't think you're going to find a good reason. Yeah, I, know. I don't think you can really, you know, ever find a good reason why people do the things they do when it comes to murder. Yeah, you can't rationalize irrational behavior, right? Right. So we see uh, Stacy's uh, dad, bio dad. Bio dad's looking through a photo album of Lacey. Oh, yeah. He's watching the interview. And Sharon's is saying that Scott wouldn't hurt Lacey. Um, so now we're at the search office. And Kate is there to volunteer, you know, to help the efforts. And this is when she asks about Scott, whether where he is. And um, she tells Kate that Scott comes in in the morning, you know, before work. And this is, this is when she's surprised that Scott actually works. I don't really know how I felt about that because I'm like, I get where she's coming from. And maybe in her situation, she wouldn't handle a tragedy is quite the same way, but people, they cope differently. For some people, going to work helps them keep their mind off of things. It helps keep them sane. I'm not a Scott Peterson fan, but I didn't really, I don't know, I don't really like that reaction because everybody is different. That could have been his one piece of sanity. And if he wasn't a guilty, lying, sneaking sociopath. But um, I think that's probably a normal reaction because she's in the moment. You're saying that because you're outside of the moment. You know what I mean? Perhaps, but I, I don't know. I just, it just never, cause I remember when, um, Marie Osmond, when her son, had, he, he committed suicide, I believe. Um, this was years ago. He had committed suicide. And I remember like a couple of days after she decided like she was doing a, some kind, kind of concert or something like that. And people like online were like judging her like, Oh my God, how could she do that? Her son just died. And in my mind, it, it just didn't occur to me. I was like, that's how she copes like it just it was just always something to me like I get that people cope 
differently. Maybe being in front of a room full of people, maybe being around her fans gives her some sort of comfort as opposed to sitting in a dark room by yourself thinking, like being alone with the quiet in your thoughts. Like, I don't know, everybody's different. But I hear what you're saying though. Because later on, we see Donna and she's she's leaving and she seems a little put off by Scott, right? And I said, oh yeah, I guess she's the only one with sense. We later find out why she seems sort of somewhat hostile. Put a pin in that one as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Tommy is being interviewed in this next scene by a TV reporter. And this is where we learn about the backstory about how he knew Lacey, how he and him, Lacey, Kate and Scott all became friends. And he, this is where we found out Scott is actually one of his best friends. Tommy is someone like throughout this movie, he is like the last of the defenders. You know what I mean? And you know, he is ride or die for Scott. He is just, he's loyal to a fault. Lacey's dad, Scott is outside. There's a bunch of reporters outside and Lacey's father, he comes to visit Scott. So Scott's like, you know, he's dealing with certain things. He's like, okay, go wait inside. I'll be right with you. So, you know, her father, he goes into the room. Connor's room is all set up and all. Something about that was so sad. And she was so probably so excited and so ready to bring this beautiful boy into this world. She set up his room. Like, like something about that is really, really sad. Then, so he's waiting and he's waiting. He happens to look out the window. And then what does Scott do, Alex? Scott runs away. He goes off in his truck and he goes somewhere else, leaving him in the house. What a frigging coward. Who does that? Now, yeah, you call him a coward. But again, like I said, like we said, we're not Team Scott. It is very possible that he was just frustrated with the reporters and just felt like he needed to get out of there. And so he left. He can get out of there and go in his house. That makes no sense. He he knows that man is waiting in the house. I think more than likely, he didn't want to face him. That's possible. The next scene, Scott, I mean, sorry, Lacey's, father, Lacey's dad and Brent, her brother, are talking. And, you know, he, that's when he's sharing his frustration about the the earlier scene. And he's like, yo, what a, what a dick. Like, why would he do something like that? And he also mentions that he heard that Scott, Scott is basically playing golf. He, that's what he's doing with his time. He's playing golf. Um, Scott was actually, um, he was on his way to become like a professional golfer. They don't mention that in the movie. I guess they didn't find it important, but he was, he was like a almost top rank in his, uh, college days. He ended up changing course, you know, and like went the business route, but he was actually a really good golfer and could have potentially went pro. Brett is telling her dad, his dad, Hey, I, I trust Scott. Again, like I said, this family is really team scott at this point still i guess this family was not true crime um junkies like they weren't true crime addicts because i don't know like nothing about scott's behavior to me would ever make me go hey i trust this man with with my whole heart nothing at all like his all his his behavior just everything about his actions seems so suspicious to me the entire time i don't know like these people are too trusting scott gets an anonymous phone call telling him to confess to tell him to tell the police where the body is. I wonder how many of these phone calls he got. He calls Amber and quote unquote confesses. He tells her that he was married and that his wife disappeared. He's speaking in the past tense. Yeah, I was saying that he also, he mentioned that his wife went missing, but he said that she went missing like a year prior. 
right? He's not mentioning anything about she just, you know, went missing. Like he's right. talking about like, I guess that's what you mean. Like when you say in the past tense, like this is something that happened some time ago. Exactly. And he also promises to never lie to her again. Right. As if he could ever keep that promise. But that same okay. night, but that same night, Amber uncovers his lie. He's, she spots him on TV along with the Peterson and the Roaches. Yes, they have. They are attending uh, a candlelight vigil in Stacy's honor, and this is the point where we see that the reward money has been raised to five hundred thousand dollars. But the thing about him is, like, even at this vigil, first off, a couple of things that we notice: he's not up on stage with the family, right? He is kind of like sort of incognito in a sense in the crowd. His mother actually had to speak kind of on behalf of the Peterson family. It was his mother that did it. But the other thing I also noticed is that he's kind of smiling for the cameras, like not for the cameras, but the cameras catch him at different moments sort of smiling. And I found that so odd. It's like he doesn't know how to be like a real boy. You know what I mean? Like freaking Pinocchio. That's that's like that's what his name should be. He doesn't know how to act like a normal person would in the I know I'm contradicting myself a lot because I'm saying there's no right way to act, but smiling certainly is just doesn't seem to be proper protocol in this situation. Anyway, as you said, this is when Amber catches, you know, when she learns of his um deceit and she's kind of stunned we we didn't mention how they met actually in october of 2002 he met a woman by the name of sean sibley at a trades show he actually told her that she was single and so in november of 2000 that same year november 2002 she introduced scott to her best friend amber fry that's how that relationship gets started got started she never knew he was married i'm talking about sean so when they said a friend, because before they were like, oh, he, a friend introduced him. I, we couldn't understand how a friend who knew Scott would know that he was married would introduce right. him to Amber Fry. A friend is a very strong term. I think she was just sort of like a, a passing acquaintance. So that's how she didn't know. Yeah. He also told her, Sean Sibley, that he was looking for a soulmate. What the hell? Wow. Right? Wow. Okay. Okay, needless to say, she's shocked to find out that the man she loves is a liar. So what does she do? She does what any woman has been betrayed does. She makes him pay. Oh, you want to play me? This is what she's saying. I got something for you. What is this, a story? <laughs> you don't agree? Okay, okay. She's doing the moral thing. Okay, she's doing the moral thing. She's doing what's right. I We kind of had a debate about, Alex and I, about what... Amber's motives were. I think there were like I think we both believe that there was um a mix of motives. Like there there were mo- multiple reasons as to why she called. But right. I felt that her um her main motive motive was to remove her from the situation to let everyone because she know felt that mm-hmm. that it was the right thing to do. Right. Okay. And Anyways, you felt what? What did you feel? I, maybe it's a little bit of both, but. Okay, more so the moral thing. She wanted to let everyone know she had nothing to do with Lacey's disappearance. That makes sense. Anyways, yeah. She calls the police and tells them who she is and what she knows. And they give her a polygraph to verify her story. Then use her to help nail Scott pretty much. Yes, in actuality, she learned 
that Scott was married, not because he called her, because she read and saw something in a newspaper about Stacy's, excuse me, whoa, about Lacey's disappearance. See how easy that is? And she figured out that Scott was involved. And so then she calls the police. Okay, I guess what I'm thinking is that, and, and you know, you don't have to add this, that she was helping the police before the police told anyone about her existence. I think that's what I'm thinking. But continue. Yeah, I think I read that they actually asked her to help them. Are you saying that the reason she she decided to go to the police before they came and found her and started to suspect that she was in on the plot? I mean, yeah, I could see that too. That's not what I was saying. Oh, just pretend you said that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Donna, Kate, and Angela, they're kind of having their lunch. And... Oh yeah, Kate is pregnant, by the way. I forgot to mention that. And this is where, if you remember earlier, I said that Donna was sort of um, put off by Scott. This is where we learn why. Donna, she's a real estate agent and Scott asked her what she thought Mm -hmm. the value Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. home was. I said, geez, this guy can't even pretend to care. He doesn't get it. Like how can, and again, this is my assumption how can someone who thought about just about every detail is failing to connect the dots because he doesn't know how to be human i know what you're saying he doesn't know how to be human that's just a basic human thing like you know like you're supposed to care about people and you're not supposed to be thinking about things like houses and he just doesn't i i'm not as i think he's some sort of sociopath I think I'm just starting f- to think so too. Yeah, you're like, starting. How do you not? Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm sorry. I, I, I'm late, but like, how do you not think asking about selling your home is not going to raise suspicion with anyone? Like, I just don't get it. He's doing that. He's playing golf. He's leaving this woman pregnant, eight month pregnant woman on Christmas Eve. Yeah, it's like he doesn't know how to. It's like he he's playing a part. That he should never have been casting, right? And that, and that's what I feel like is like is is a, is a problem. So Amber is talking to the cops, and she's at this point she's being she's hooked up to a lie detector test. So they're trying to decipher whether she is tell the truth about yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. And at this point is when Gates. You know, neither of us finished that statement, right? But we're both agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> No, I didn't even realize that because I feel like I knew what I was saying. I knew you knew what I, I knew what right. you were saying, so I didn't even realize that. They, they, they'll they'll know. They'll right. know. <laughs> At this point, Gates admits to Amber that they believe that Scott is responsible for Lacey's, you know, ultimate demise. Uh, she. This is when she has to say, you know, I didn't know he was married. I I'm not a homewrecker, not intentionally anyway." And this is when we also learn. This is when she tells pretty much like the timeline. Like she tells him that she met him in November and he was uh, introduced to her at a party. And I'm like, you just met this woman in November and you're willing to risk it all. You just met her. So that's that's why I don't think this was really ever about Amber. She was just, you know what I mean? Meeting her was just a catalyst to the life that he wanted or the freedom that he was seeking. It was never right. about her. You could have cut and paste any woman in that spot and he would have did this done the same thing. I don't think he loved her because remember at one point they were like, well, I love you. He didn't love her. I don't think he even knows how to love. 
Like, I just don't. I don't think he's capable of that. I just think he knows how to fake it. I'm sorry. Did you hear that before he met Stacy, not long before he met Stacy, he was actually in a relationship with another woman and she ended up breaking it off with him. And weeks later, he meets Lacey and then he brings Lacey, I guess they're on a date, to the prior woman's job. Wow. I guess in an attempt to make her jealous. Wow. Yeah. And so, oh wait, so 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 that goes to the fact that you said, or your assumption that he never loved her. Because mm. again, this was weeks after he was involved with someone else. Wow. That's low. He, like, she already knew Lacey about one affair that he's had. I think they were alluding to a possible other affair. So this guy's a cad. Oh, that's the first time I've ever used that word. <laughs> I'm always going to use it. But he's like... He's a he's a slime ball. I just felt like she was just too good a soul for him. Right. You know, we see Amy breaking down in the bathroom and Kate is like comforting her. Kate is a good friend. But she's still at this point, she's still one of those people that still believes in Scott. She believes that. Cause I, I remember when Donna was saying that um, you know, uh when she was upset about um Scott asking about the house. Oh yeah, she said she was saying, Oh yeah, when Lacey returns, she's not gonna want to live in a house that she was possibly abducted from. Yeah. But we didn't talk about the theory that the... That everyone else had. I guess the, the cop... Yeah. One of the theories was that there was a robbery across the street at the time that she was walking her dog. And she kind of came upon it. And so the robbers, they saw her. So And they abducted her. And they were originally holding her. And then that's when they kind of realized, hey, we can't keep her alive. And so then that's when they killed her and then basically threw her in the bay. That was the that was the going theory. At least certainly that was what the prosecution was trying to put, you know. And that's what uh, Scott was hoping everyone believed. Can I I ask you a question? Why would you have your alibi be the place where you knew that you dumped your wife's body? How many like, times do we have to go over this cow? He thought about this, but he didn't think about it. You know what I mean? I, that makes... I don't... I can't even begin to comprehend the stupidity of that at all. Like, he would have just been better off saying he was golfing. You dumped her in the bay and you told the police that you were fishing in the bay. Oh, my God. Like, ugh. Like, he wasn't as smart as he, thought as, as he thought he, he was. He wasn't as smart at all. At this point, this is when the cops kind of drop the uh, anvil. I don't know where the, where the shoe drops for the family. And they kind of tell them uh, about Amber's existence. You know, um, at first they don't believe it. They don't believe like Amber, like, that Scott cheated with Amber. And that's when the police present the evidence, with the photographic evidence rather. Bam, right on the table. Yeah. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. The cops, we see them out on a boat and they have a sonar machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yay! That's <laughs> I feel like you want to say, good job. And basically they're looking for a body or something that um, would is consistent. That. Yes, mm-hmm. it's consistent with the shape and size of a body. And they kind of hit upon something. We'll come back to that, whether, you know, what that is. So Kate, Tommy, and Scott, they're having dinner and they get a telephone call. And that's when they find out, oh yeah, that's when a reporter is looking for a comment. And so they turn on the news and that's when they find out that, hey, that's what the police are doing. So now we're 
Oh, yeah. We also learned that there are retrieval efforts being made. So the police are all over that bay looking for Stacy. And all this makes Scott nervous. Mm-hmm. And he tells Tommy that he's going out to L.A. and to San Diego under the false pretense that he's going to be setting up more searches. But um, this, Yeah, that's okay. The scene before that, we see Sharon, and she's also watching the news, and she's kind of reflecting. And that's when she says to herself, why I'm was missing. he... Right. Okay. Yeah, why would Scott say that she's missing? Why would he say, Lacey's not home? I can't find her. Basically, she's saying that Scott already reached a conclusion. Why would he jump from point A to point Z without reaching every other logical step in that progression? Does that make sense? Right, yeah. How do you jump to she's missing? Like, why did you say, oh, is she with you? Or uh, why wouldn't you call one of your friends? Hey, um, have you heard from Lacey? That's not logical. So, you know, that's what happens. Hindsight is twenty twenty, And you don't want to believe like somebody that you have loved for years and have come to care about and have come to consider as a family could do something like that. So I can understand why she was so reticent to believe like Scott could do something like that. I totally understand that. I can't blame her. So when, as you mentioned before, when Scott and Tommy were talking about the pool, Scott, Tommy is telling Scott, that he's coming across poorly by not talking to the media. And he tells him that he's coming off cold, you know? And of course, God is playing, you know, this poor, you know, poor me. And, you know, he's saying, oh, I don't want to make it all about me. I don't want the cops to twist what I say and how I say it. He's like, I can't cry on cue, Tommy. Bruh, you don't even, do you even know how to cry? Do you even know how to exhibit emotion? Probably not. But anyway, at one point we see him tearing down a Christmas tree. I guess this is him exhibiting that pent up frustration and he's on the marina and that's when Gates and Ross, they kind of spot him and they're like, hey, he's worried. He's feeling trapped. He may potentially run. Put a pin in that. So even though the sonar image turns out not to be a body, but it's an anchor Scott at this point is packing. He's still trying to head out to LA, but Brent, Lacey's brother, he comes and confronts Scott asking if he had an affair. And Scott's response is no. But then Brent is like Amber Fry. And he's like, oh, affair. That's what you mean. <laughs> and then he says, um, yeah, I did. Uh, Lacey knew about it. We talked about it. And, you know, we were working things out, something along those lines. And... I think Brent says, why didn't you say anything? And then Mm -hmm. Scott was, what kind of person would I be to have said it at this time? Am I right? He said that it will make him look guilty. Yeah. Yeah. It will make him look guilty. And then Brent replies, well, it makes you look guilty when you don't say anything. Mm -hmm. And so he leaves Scott's house. And the next scene is the character assassinations. Brent holds a press conference. And he's stating that Scott has confirmed the affair after being confronted with the allegation. He goes on to say how he and his family trusted Scott and they stood by him during the initial phases of Lacey's disappearance. And, you know, at the same time, Amber's making her press conference. She's saying that she met him on November 20th, but I think you said they met in October in actuality, right? No, they met in November. He met the friend in October. Got you. And Amber is saying that she was under the impression that he wasn't married because the person that introduced him 
said that Scott was not married and so did Scott. She also confirmed that their relationship was romantic. She stated that as soon as she learned that he was involved with Lacey Peterson's disappearance, she called the Modesto police immediately. She apologized for the pain that this has caused for them and she prays for herself safe return, something that Scott really didn't do until the end. The only reason that Amber did come forward was because the tabloids somehow got a hold of a picture of her and Scott. They knew about the affair and they were getting ready to leak it. So she wanted to jump ahead of it and she decided to have a press conference. Okay. So after that, we see a a phone call, a telephone call between Amber and Scott. So you got to remember at this point, she's working with the police. So everything that every conversation, every communication between them via phone is being recorded. And later, this is basically what sinks him at trial. Because I believe like based on what I've read and um, the documentaries that I've watched, his defense team was making some headway. It was the Amber Fry tapes that basically sunk the whole ship. The you know, 29 hours. 29 recording. hours. That's a lot. I forgot to mention that in Brett's, during Brett's press conference, um, he did say that he's letting everyone know that Scott is no longer communicating with Lacey's family and that he no longer supports or stands by him. Okay. And during, also during the phone call, he apologizes to Amber. He tells her that he loves her and she, you know, of course she reciprocates and he offers her some jewelry. Oh my oh, gosh. That's so sweet. Oh, except it's not. It's like, it's him just not thinking again. Cause we later learned Why? that. What do you mean? <laughs> we later learned that it's Lacey's jewelry. Oh my. That's so trash. That's so tacky. That's so gross. That's so stupid. You gave another woman your deceased wife's jewelry man that's cold man that's cold that's cold you know what i also forgot to mention that we're talking about amber fry i didn't mention it but when she was you know talking to the police about everything she mentioned to them that scott had told her and this was on december 9th but he had told her that he was a widower and that this would be the first christmas without his wife mm-hmm. dun 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 and the plot thickens that's like, that's a complete, like, if you, if that's not completely premeditated. I don't know what is. This is two weeks before she actually disappeared. He already knew that he was going to have, like, he, he'd already planned this. He was going to have a Christmas without Lacey. Mm. He's really a piece of work. And I just don't know. Christmas? Again, this, <laughs> this is me trying to rationalize his, 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 his thinking. So he knows that Amber contacted the police. Does he not think that she's going to honestly help them and answer any questions that they have? Hey, where did no. you get the jewelry from? Like, I, I, I don't get it. No. I think Lacey was like so in love with him. Like, I think she loved him more than he loved her. And I think that he felt like that is what it was. You know, this, that, that was the same situation with Amber. I think she thought he was, she was so, so into him, so head over heels for him that she couldn't possibly she wouldn't possibly call the cops or, you know, work with them. You know, that's complete. What is that? Arrogance? Right. Like, I, I can hear. I, I understand that. But 
that was your that was his thinking at first, but then he later learns that she did call the police. So is he still thinking that okay, she's still so in love with me? She's not going. He she's not going to give them any more information. I don't know. Give me another explanation. I don't have one. <laughs> or rather, he's an idiot. He's an idiot. Tommy and Kate are arguing about Scott's affair. Uh, Kate wants to know whether she knew or whether he knew that Scott was a low down, dirty dog, and Tommy insists that he didn't. Tommy and Kate, they uh, they own a restaurant and Lacey's father, he comes to visit them at the restaurant. And at this point, Tommy is still insisting that Lacey is still alive because, you know, these people still have a whole lot of hope. I mean, like I said, these are not true crime fans because I don't know how after how much time has passed at this point, weeks. Yeah. And they're still holding out hope. That's you have to realize that Lacey is their childhood friend, so they're holding out hope. The same way a parent holds out hope when their child has been missing after many years. Mm. Yeah, so I, can, I can see that. that. Yeah. So he finally wises up and he ends up getting a lawyer. And I think that's the only smart thing that he's done. Everything else was just plain old stupid. Okay, so we see here that his attorney is someone named uh, Mr. Whitman. And in real life, his attorney ended up being uh, Mark Garagos, who is like a world, he's like a celebrity attorney. He's like really high profile. Like he's represented like Michael Jackson. I remember him like representing Chris Brown a lot. That's the name. I, I just remember hearing that name a lot. But yeah, he's a high profile guy. Okay. So we're back at the restaurant, Tommy and Kate's restaurant. And there's this journalist guy who's talking about the case. And he's just sort of making these flippant comments about the case. He calls Scott a callous prick. I mean, is he is he wrong? I see no lies. But of course, Tommy, as a good friend, as a loyal friend, he defends Scott. And he and the reporter are like really getting into it. And, you know, that's when, you know, the reporter is like bringing up Amber. And he's like, yeah, well, if that's the case, if the cops believe that he's so guilty, why haven't they charged him? And that's when the guy, the reporter is like, because they want the body. That was like a mic drop moment. Tommy's like, yeah, I don't have anything to say to that. <laughs> but um, after that is when Tommy goes to Scott's house. He knocks on the door. And of course, Scott is just sitting there completely ignoring him. I guess this is like he's feeling the heat at this point. He The, the pressure is on mm-hmm. him. He knows like the world is turning against him. Oh, yeah. I guess the, Tommy still has a little bit of hope because he goes and confronts Detective Ross about... Why, like, and he asks him why he didn't speak to the witness who claimed to see Lacey walking her dog the day before, or when she, the time when Scott said that she was walking a dog. And that's when he tells him, look, we've got 8,000 tips and we were able to clear over 200 suspects and nothing we've been able to do thus far has been able to clear Scott. He is guilty. He also tells him that, you know, well, he tells him in a hypothetical way because obviously they can't reveal, you know, these sort of pertinent facts about case, the case. And that's when he kind of tells them, you know, they found Lacey's hair in the boat. They found a tarp, a loaded gun in the truck. And that's when he also mentions that he gave Lacey's jewelry to Amber. If you think that there's any like scintilla of a possibility that someone... The word scintilla, cad... The words. What else are you using? <laughs> Alex, have you met me? <laughs> if you believe like there's even a shred of hope that somebody that you care about is missing, you're not preparing 
to move on with your life as though it's business as usual. You're not giving away their stuff because you're hoping that there's a chance that they come back. So that that alone is such a huge red flag. It's either he thinks he's smarter than everyone or he's starting to believe his own lies. Because if a detective if a detective is telling you, hey, we found blood and hair, do you really think he's bluffing? Mm. Like I don't I, I don't know. We're approaching this whole, you know, we're breaking this down in a logical way. And I don't think, I think you said, you've alluded to this. You can't, this, yeah. this thought process isn't logical yeah. at all. At the lawyer's office, he tells his uh, his attorney that the DA is willing to take the death penalty off the table if he leads him to Lacey's body. But of course he's not going to do that because he doesn't want to admit that he killed Lacey. Basically. And he wasn't even aware that the death penalty was on the table. And like you said, he still rejected the deal. And at this point, he still hasn't been named a suspect. So he's probably saying to himself, no body, no crime. So why would he lead him to the body? Mm-hmm. And this is when he decides to do a TV interview to try to win the the public's sympathy, try to sway their mind that he's not the suspect, you know? He's trying this court or, you know, this case in a court of public opinion, essentially, or he's trying to win the favor back. So he decides to, you know, do a sit down with Diane Sawyer. And as we said earlier, mm, that didn't go over so well. If you watch the actual interview, he seems so vacant. And I think I said that earlier, so devoid of any sort of emotion, like even when he's talking about, or at one point he didn't even bring up his son. It was Diane Sawyer who brought up, hey, she's like, hey, you haven't, you know, really talked about Connor throughout this. Even his response to that, first he has a long pause and then, I don't know, it just seems so dry. Speaking of dry, I don't know why, but during the interview, I can hear, like he was thirsty. Like his, like, his lips were just, I don't know how to describe it. it. Yeah, cotton mouth. Yeah. Yeah. It just seemed like he was thirsty. It's probably, some people, that happens to them when they get nervous sometimes. Okay. That's probably why. But during that interview, like you said, he was cold. He was emotionless. He was just rambling. And I think he was just rambling the things that he had rehearsed mm-hmm. several times before, months prior, weeks prior, however many days it took him to plot this murder. I wrote down, just tell everyone you're guilty so we can all go home. I mean, please and thank you. So at this point, a car dealer, he he knocks on Stacy's parents, their door, and he basically tells them that Scott traded in Lacey's car, but he doesn't feel right about it. So he basically gave them her car back and told them that they don't, you know, they don't have to pay for it. He just, it just didn't sit right in his spirit to take money for that. He's so, such a dummy. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. Have we said that before? Yeah. I, it's like, I know we sound like a broken record, right? But, yo, hi, you ex- you are giving away all of her things. Like, you already know she's not coming home. Even exactly. if even if it is a case of you saying, okay, yeah, at this point, it's been X amount of time. The likelihood of her returning home is, is nil. It's like almost non-existent. Even if that is your contention. There is just a level of callousness for you to already have mentally moved on to the point that you are willing to give away her things. And it's like her jewel, like even if you really believe that, 
that's stuff you should give to her family. That's something that shouldn't even happen yet. That's stuff that should happen over the course of time. Oh, what a what a monster. So at this point, Scott is having dinner with Kate and Tommy because at this point, they're basically it. Aside from probably his parents and some other close family, Kate and Tommy are all he has at this point. Nobody's buying what he's selling. So Kate, basically, I think she's just really, she's over it. So she confronts Scott about his affair. And that's when Scott tells her that he's got to go to Mexico for work. And I'm like, you still have a job? How the heck? He must have been one hell of a fertilizer salesman. Because I don't understand how his boss wasn't like, look, man, this, this, the heat is getting too hot, man. Like, why don't you just take a vacation? I'm doing air quotes, guys. I know you can't see it. But, uh, you know, I'm surprised, like, they didn't, you know, put him out to pasture because of all the negative publicity. Or maybe they thought that that helped. I don't know. But he's going on a vacation, a trip, whatever. Okay, so we're with Scott again. Yay! Imagine my delight. Um, So the police confiscate his keys because they're basically going to take his car to search it. And we also see Gates is escorting Amy out of the police car. And later, Kate is a distraught Kate, I should say. She's talking to Tommy about how she went by the house earlier. And she saw Amy going into the Peterson house with the police. And she was basically, she's basically upset because she realizes that the reason that Amy's presence is requested is because she had a standing appointment with Scott and Lacey. And the night before Lacey's disappearance, she cut cut her hair. And so she would have seen what Amy was wearing. So more likely than not, the police wanted her to try to identify the clothing that she was wearing. And she came out and she noticed that when Amy came out, she was crying. And that's because she couldn't find the clothes. And Kate was saying that more likely than that, that's because she died in them. And this is all speculation. Of course. So Scott and Tommy are golfing. You remember, Scott, he's just a golf head. He's just like a golf fanatic. So Tommy is kind of like really, he's finally kind of asking, you know, questions. And he's asking him, why won't you just take the lie detector test? You know, another question he asks him is, why don't you talk about Connor? You know, you're missing potentially deceased son. How is that not something at the top of your mind? So at this point... Connor's body is found, and a day later, Lacey's body was found several miles from where Scott said he went fishing. I don't know if he calls up the family and pretends to grieve for the discovery of the bodies, but he does call Amber up. He tells her that he didn't kill her, but he knows who did. This is, again, Scott just talking when he doesn't need to be talking. Like, Mm -hmm. shut up, Scott. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't know that the police are listening in. They see that he's on his way to Amber's house and they don't want to jeopardize her safety. So they send a unit out to to her home and he notices that the police are at her house. And it looks like he turns around, but then it looks like he still passes her house and still sees the, the police there. So then he makes his way back home. And so that police presence raises his suspicion and he learns that they had a tracker installed on his vehicle. And that's actually the reason, or maybe one of the reasons they had a search warrant out for his car to put a track on his car. Okay. Let's go back a little bit. Um, on the news, we learned after they found the body that, you know, they have to conduct DNA tests and 
DNA tests in order to identify the body and that they won't be conducting dental records. And that's more or less because she was decapitated. There was no head. I didn't catch on to that at first. It was only until after one of the reporters said that, that yeah. I realized what had happened. Yeah. She had, um, like when they found her body, actually, she had no head. She had no limbs. Like most of her internal organs were also gone. Is it possible that yeah. some type of animal had gotten to her? And that he the, didn't do for, all that damage. Yeah, I, I think he. I definitely think he decapitated, decapitated her. Decapitated. Yeah. Yeah. That for sure. But I, let's right. But let's talk about the bodies being found. Oh Lord. Okay. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> because <laughs> when I was hearing the story that Connor's body was found, and then later Lacey's body was found, I, I didn't understand. I was thinking to myself, did he remove Connor from Lacey? Did she give birth before he killed her? Like, I didn't understand. So I had to do the research. So I later learned that there's this term called postmortem fetal extrusion. And that's where the fetus is pushed through the vaginal canal of a decomposing pregnant body as a result of pressure from the abdomen. So that's how. The two were separated. Okay. And the next scene, which is probably the next day, he drives back to Kate and Tommy's house um, looking for Tommy to let them know. Well, yeah, to let them know that he's going out of town. Only Tommy isn't there. And Kate, at this point, she suspects Scott. She no longer is standing by him. So that's why she ushers her son into the house. And he asks about Tommy, but her response, you can tell her from her response that she doesn't want Tommy to to talk to him. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want him to have anything to do with him. No poker so, face. She has no poker face, man. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, I just wanted to say goodbye. And he leaves. Oh, uh, one more thing he says to her. He says, he says, no matter what you think of me, I wanted what you have. Yeah. What does that mean? I thought you did. That's just him lying again. So Tommy and Kate, after this is after that, obviously. Tommy and Kate are still arguing. And Tommy's just, he's still having this internal conflict. Like trying to reconcile the Scott that he knew with the actions that, you know, caused the death of Lacey and Connor. And he's like, but he wanted that baby. Mm, did he though? Because I heard some things. I'm just saying. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Yeah, I remember like his, her mom was like, she, uh, Lacey's mom was like, Lacey had told her that, you know, when she was pregnant, he never wanted to like touch her belly and never wanted to like feel the baby kick. Mm. Yeah, right. So uh, that's what I'm saying. Did he though? Mm, not sure. All right. So the preliminary reports come in and they say it's a match for Lacey and Connor. Mm-hmm. So the police go to San Diego to arrest him. And... When they find him, they notice that one, he dyed his hair and his beard, and two, he had his brother's license, and he also had a wad of cash on him, and he wasn't that far. Fifteen thousand dollars. They don't they don't mm-hmm. state that in the in the in the film, but it's about fifteen thousand dollars. And he was about thirty miles from the Mexico border, so it looks like he was getting ready to run. They found him at a golf course. Like that's what they say. When you are on the run, you have to change your behavior. That's one way they're able to locate people because people don't change behavior. I'm just saying, like, could you just give up the golf? I'm just saying. We see Scott being brought in. 
and there are protesters and the protesters are raising hell. I actually saw a video of this and this that's exactly how it happened. They these people were so passionate about invested, yeah. Yeah. You know, we see uh Sharon, she has a press conference. At this point, that's when Tommy has his I called it a come to terms breakdown. Like he's just he can't deny it anymore at this point. He's He's like, oh, snap, he really did it. (laughs) Mm, mm, mm. At the end, we kind of see Scott. He's in his prison jumpsuit. Orange is so his color. But he's in his prison jumpsuit, and that's kind of the end. I wonder when this movie came out, because there was no, you know, no update on, you know, what happened? I think this movie came out too early. Maybe I don't know because they didn't. What update. do you mean an update on what happened? Because there is an they, update on this case. I didn't. I didn't. No, I mean like in the movie, I didn't see it. It just kind of went to black, right? Well, we know that he was convicted. Well, obviously, what I'm saying, like this movie, I was just trying to figure out what the timeline was. So this happened. His conviction was what in 2004, 2005. He was convicted November 12, 2004, of first degree m- murder for Lacey and second degree murder for Connor. However. In August of, of this year, 2020, the California Supreme Court overturned Peter's death sentence, but the guilty verdict, it remained. So now there's going to be a new sentencing trial that's ordered. They overturned it because in the trial, there were some jurors that expressed, you know, general objections to the death penalty. To the death penalty, yeah. And when they did, those jurors were excused, but there was nothing to indicate that they couldn't reach a fair verdict in the trial. So those jurors shouldn't have been dismissed. At least that's what the appeals court found or Supreme Court rather found. So that's why his um, conviction was overturned. Those jurors should never have been dismissed simply on the the conviction wasn't overturned. Just the death penalty. Yeah. He's still guilty. Yeah. But I'm saying, yes, those jurors shouldn't have been dismissed just merely on their objection to death penalty. That's not, Mm -hmm. you know, and learning of that overturn of the death sentence, the Rocha family, they're understandably hurt. Mm. But hey, he gets to spend the rest of his life in jail. One of the things that came out of that was the Unborn Victims of Violence Act. And it just basically says that anybody who causes the death of an unborn child while they're committing a crime upon a woman who's pregnant can be charged with a separate offense. So you can be, you can be charged with double murder for that which wasn't the case here. Um, unfortunately, yeah, I was really kind of sad to read that, but um, her stepfather died. Yeah, her, fa- her stepfather, he died in his sleep in 2018 at the age of 71. And her father, Dennis Rocha, he died the same year at the age of 72. And that family's been through it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Do you have anything else to add or any takeaways? He got what he deserved. That's it. Don't kill your wife. Don't kill anybody for that matter. Um, I don't know if I had any takeaways. This was, um, I don't know, people, if you're unhappy in your situation, I mean, <laughs> there are alternatives. You could have, he could have just been a deadbeat father. Not that I condone deadbeats, but I mean, Connor would have been 17 had this never happened. He'd have been almost an adult. He would have got the chance to live a full life. He didn't even get a chance to take a breath because of somebody's selfishness and callousness. Like if you are in a situation where you are unhappy, then find a better way. You know, that that this whole situation was just really sad and unfortunate. That pretty much wraps up Lacey Peterson. Uh, the sources that we use for this episode, rollingstone.com, cnn.com, Wikipedia, Dateline, Truth, Lies, 
and the murder of Lacey Peterson, as well as American Justice, the Scott Peterson trial. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Say bye, Alex. Bye, Alex. I'm Carol, your resident true crime-loving Black girl, and I'm here with my sister, Alex. Say hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. Could you say it less sarcastically than that? You were using your sexy voice, I was using mine. I'm not using my sexy voice. I'm using my voice voice. If you say so. <laughs>